One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's a hot spring day in the Swiss countryside near Geneva. Marco Galaske, a mechanical engineer, is busy in one of the workshops on the sprawling site of CERN, the world's biggest particle physics laboratory. What we produce over here are prototypes, urgent components, urgent repairs of mechanical equipment which is needed for the LHC chain of accelerators and experiments. We produce anything from uh, components for magnets to components for uh, whatever is needed for the accelerator to work. So to accelerate the particles, to bend them, uh, to sustain them for doing diagnostics, everything uh, of this sort is being produced over here. It's here that Marco and his team have been developing and building new parts for the upgrades to the Large Hadron Collider, or LHC. The LHC in itself is made up of many, many different accelerators, which are in a chain. Within these accelerators, you have a zoo of different components. You have magnets, you have also accelerating cavities. These accelerating cavities are the systems which are taking the particles and giving them a little bit more energy, so that at the end, within the LHC, they can reach the highest energies. When you get up to colliders such as the LHC, the cavities are just a few of them within a ring of almost 30 kilometers uh, made up of uh, a lot, a lot of different other components, such as the magnets. Scientists and engineers have spent the past three years rebuilding and refining large chunks of the LHC. Their plan is to smash together even more particles at even higher energies than before. Cavities, they need to be more precise to actually perform what they need to be performing, so accelerating or a beam which will be more and more focused, which will uh, be a bit more uh, energetic. But uh, this is actually true for any given component of the LHC, so this is why a lot of R&D is being performed on magnets. The LHC has just completed its upgrades and is about to restart its collisions. In last week's programme, we talked about what scientists want to do in its next phase of science, known around CERN as RUN3. But the physicists and engineers here never stop thinking about the future, the far future. A large number of them are already turning their attention to what happens after Run 3, to the LHC's next big upgrade. At this moment, what we already worked on was the, the, the pre-setting up of some of the, of the activities for high luminosity LHC. So design and fabrication is being pushed uh, more and more to the state of the art of uh, technology. So the requirements are, are, are getting stricter, are getting higher. But uh, I mean, that's why we're there. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. This week is the second episode from our trip to the Large Hadron Collider at CERN in Geneva, and we're going to gaze into the future. 
The Large Hadron Collider has a lot of science left to do and a lot of fundamental physics questions still to address. We'll look at what scientists, and frankly also the rest of us, can expect from this machine. This is a very odd position for a field of science to be in, right? Because we've got a guaranteed 10 to 15 years of exciting stuff to come. We'll also look beyond the LHC. How will physicists probe ever deeper into the nature of the universe? At CERN, on ground level, we can see the low-rise campus of the European Organisation for Nuclear Research. Around 100 metres below the surface, though, is the 27-kilometre circular tunnel that contains the Large Hadron Collider, or LHC. We started the show in Marco's workshop, where he and his colleagues were rebuilding parts of the LHC. Now let's head back through the pristine Swiss countryside, to the heart of the research facilities, where groups of scientists control the collider and gather the data from the collisions. While we travel, it's probably a good time for a quick recap of what we learned last time. This enormous underground laboratory is about to start its third period of collisions and experiments, called Run 3. It's after three years of maintenance and upgrades. The main difference is that we will accumulate data at a much faster rate. John Butterworth is a professor of physics at University College London. He also works on ATLAS at the LHC, one of the Collider's main experiments. So we will basically double the data set that we had before very quickly. And when you double the data set, you shrink the errors so that you shrink the uncertainty so you can do things more precisely. We also have a small increase in uh, beam energy, which again pushes the frontier of the energy further and um, it allows us to probe with somewhat higher resolution. But also the experiments being upgraded mean that we can handle more data. And also we have these online selection algorithms that we can improve because most of the collisions we actually in the end throw away. We, only, we try and save the most interesting subset, but the definition of what's interesting and our capability to select it has improved and changed as well. And in particular, one of the experiments, the, the LHCB experiment, they were never limited really by what the beam could deliver. They were limited by how fast they could swallow it and their upgrade will allow them to swallow a lot more. And they are the source of some of the kind of anomalies, hints, straws in the wind that we've seen so far from run one and run two, where things don't quite follow what the standard model predicts and we want to follow those up. And there's a number of those, but the most prominent ones are from LHCB. The LHC will be looking to understand many such discrepancies in Run 3. These discrepancies and anomalies are an important part of how particle physicists make their discoveries. The purpose of their work, the purpose of the LHC, is to better understand the standard model of particle physics. This is the quantum mechanical description of all the known forces and particles in the universe. At least all the forces and particles that exist at the tiniest scales of atoms. The standard model doesn't unfortunately account for gravity, which is of course hugely important at cosmic scales. The model also doesn't explain dark energy or dark matter, and it doesn't give any reasons why there's any stuff at all in the universe rather than just nothing. To think about how the LHC will be upgraded in the next decade and beyond, 
I took a seat in CERN's rather excellent cafeteria to meet Patrizia Atzi, a senior researcher at Italy's National Institute for Nuclear Physics in Padova. And I am also currently at CERN with a contract for uh, studies of the future collider. The collider has been switched off for a few years for upgrades and run three, which is the next date, phase of data collection, is, is about to start. What do physicists like you hope for in that phase of data collection? Um, there's been a sense that perhaps in the last 10 years, since that great discovery of the Higgs boson, things have slowed down a little bit. But to just help listeners un understand what has happened in the last 10 years and what you hope for in run three. We're going to double the statistics in round three. It's not going to be really a game changer in terms of the discovery reach of the obvious things. And so something that I believe would be really the interesting thing to do in round three is now to be able to have this freedom to really push our development of the analysis tools and computing tools, uh, analysis ideas. And so I think it's a fantastic moment to really push all the new ideas. And then all that is like a trampoline for what is going to come after for Hi-Lumi. Hi-Lumi is the nickname that physicists at CERN use for a future version of the LHC. The full name of that future version is the High Luminosity Large Hadron Collider, or HLLHC. This is expected to be running by the end of this decade, after another programme of upgrades. With the LHC, we start up in today, in, in 2022, and then we run all the way to the end of 2025. Rende Stierenberg, is the head of the operations group at CERN. I spoke to him in the CERN control centre. And then we're going to stop the LHC. We are going to build the HLLHC, so we're going to take apart part of the LHC, build, put in the new components, etc. Et this will take place over two and a half, three years. We commission the machine and then we'll be in the HLLHC era. So this is when we have this high collision rate. And that should be in 2029. When it comes to describing how the beam is mm -hmm. as it goes around, we're talking about the number of particles within it, um, the energies and everything, but there's another word we often use, luminosity. Can you just tell me what that means? Yeah. Okay. So luminosity, very simply said, is the number of events that you can expect in an experiment, which is then expressed in the number of protons which you have in a certain beam size. And this is what we call the density, so the number of protons per square millimetre, and then the notion of timing. How often do you repeat these collisions in a second? And this then gives you what we call luminosity, but in fact it is the probability of having these collisions. So higher luminosity just means more collisions. But what will actually have changed with the high luminosity Large Hadron Collider? The beam itself will have more substantial upgrades and the energy probably won't go up then, but then we'll really see an order of magnitude in the increase in the data rate. John Butterworth again. So rather than just doubling the data, we'll get at least an order of magnitude more. And the existing anomalies will be resolved by that one way or another. Some of them may be resolved by run three, but they'll definitely be resolved by the end. And that will also give us access to things like we've been measuring the properties of the Higgs boson more and more precisely, which will be kind of exciting. And that's the kind of bread and butter. There's still the possibility that there'll be surprises, but we know there's really important stuff to find out with it in the longer term. The High Luminosity LHC is expected to be the final iteration of the Large Hadron Collider. But of course, CERN scientists aren't sitting still. While Run 3 is, as Patricia told me earlier, 
the trampoline for the HL-LHC, the HL-LHC itself will eventually have to give way to something else. We're already thinking about the next machine. That's Randa Stierenberg. If you think about the LHC itself, in 1982, the very first papers on the ideas of the LHC started appearing. And the LHC gave its, let's say, first year of real good results in 2012. So you see there is a long time needed to go from the very first ideas to having a running machine. And the next machine is in the order of four times bigger than the LHC. It will be, in a sense, also more complex, etc., etc. So you can imagine that the time span may even be a little bit longer. Uh, and this is also needed because you have to do research and development, etc., etc. So we're talking several decades. The LHC will run still for, I think, 10, 15 years, 20 years, and uh, then we'll have to see the follow-up machine, FCC. FCC, that's another acronym, just what we needed, imaginatively stands for Future Circular Collider. At some point, it's difficult to continue scaling up size-wise, technology-wise. But in fact, what you have to see is that whenever you make a beam more energetic and you have to make this beam go around, you need stronger magnetic fields because that's what deviates the beam. Now, if you can produce these very strong magnetic fields, you can contain this in a smaller machine. But if the technology and the magnets are not there yet to do these very sharp deviations, it means that with the same magnets that we have now, and if you want to go up in, in higher energy, you have to make the machine bigger. Okay, So I think the FCC is now what we see as the next future machine. But post-FCC, uh, it also depends a lot on what technology will be available by that time, of course. Quick spoiler alert, there'll be many more acronyms to come. Because particle accelerators take so long to design and build, the attention of many of the scientists at CERN has already turned to the far future. Coming up, to the FCC and beyond, what happens after the Large Hadron Collider reaches its limit? This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Today, we're at CERN, the European Particle Physics Lab in Geneva, looking at the future of particle colliders. The Large Hadron Collider and beyond. In the site's main cafeteria, physicist Patricia Atzi told me where she thought the future of particle physics lies. There are several options on the table. It's her job to think about the next generation of machines that will collide particles and produce the data that will lead to new science. 
physicists kind of get together regularly every few years or so to kind of decide what are the priorities for the things to approve or investigate. And this is called the European Particle Strategy. The last one that we had, then it came out that probably the most important thing that it would be important to look at is to have a new collider that is of a different type that would collide particles that are electrons, electrons and positrons, that are fundamental particles. So this would imply access to slightly different aspects of the physics that we know of the standard model that we've been studying with the Hadron Collider. A quick reminder, the Large Hadron Collider accelerates protons to almost the speed of light. When they collide, the protons break apart and a shower of new particles is created, giving physicists fleeting glimpses into some of the most fundamental building blocks of matter and the forces that bind or repel them. Over its first decade of operation, the LHC has been steadily upgraded, so that its collisions have been getting more energetic. But that increasing energy still hasn't allowed physicists to break open their biggest questions about the problems of the standard model of particle physics. The scientists at the LHC famously found the Higgs boson in 2012, but since then it's been relatively quiet. Run 3 is a new chance to probe a little deeper and look a little closer at the collisions of known particles, including the Higgs boson. But we should be frank, there's no guarantee that this next series of experiments, or even the future upgrade to the high luminosity LHC, will answer those missing pieces of the particle physics puzzle either. That's why physicists are already thinking decades into the future, getting themselves and their future colleagues ready for a new generation of particle collider. Once the LHC reaches the end of its life, sometime in the next few decades, scientists would like to already be on the path to building an even bigger particle collider. The circular colliders, there's two projects. One would be imagined at CERN. It's a future circular collider. We would have a 100-kilometer tunnel that would be inhabited first by any plus and minus machine, and then it could have, it could host a proton-proton machine later on. That's the FCC, or Future Circular Collider, that we heard about earlier. When she says a plus or minus machine, Patricia Atzi is talking about a type of machine called an electron-positron collider. Electrons are the tiny, negatively charged particles that whiz around the nuclei of atoms. A positron is a positively charged twin, or an antiparticle of the electron. Collisions between electrons and positrons are a bit different to those between the much heavier protons used by the LHC. To understand how it fits together, we need to go back about 40 years. In 1983, a hadron collider at CERN called the Super Proton Synchrotron which sat in an underground tunnel with a circumference of seven kilometers, was used 
to find particles called the W and Z bosons. Now, they carry something called the weak nuclear force. Subsequently, to try and characterise and understand these newly discovered particles a bit better, CERN began operating a brand new machine called the Large Electron-Positron Collider, or LEP. Serenaded by Scottish pipers, the machine began colliding electrons and positrons at high speed in 1989. LEP sat in a brand new circular 27km tunnel that had been dug for it under the Jura Mountains. It straddled the border of Switzerland and France. That same tunnel now houses the Large Hadron Collider. In Patricia's mind, once the LHC has been packed up, a huge 100km future circular collider at CERN would take its place as the most powerful collider in the world. The enormous tunnel would first host an electron-positron collider. And once that's reached its limit of observations, it will be ripped out and replaced with a proton-proton, or hadron collider. At CERN, history would be repeating itself. In the second half of the 21st century, if all goes to plan, there could be a larger Hadron Collider under Lake Geneva. Hadron machines collide big particles, such as protons, and can reach the highest energies. Patricia explained to me why the electron-positron, or plus and minus machine, is still useful though. So the plus and minus is like a very precise machine that you calibrate for exactly the thing that you want to produce. So it is much less of a needle in a haystack situation. While when you have a proton, you try to go as high as possible because the proton, it's like a soup (laughs) of particles. So you never know how much energy will have the particles that finally gives you your interactions. Proton-proton collisions produce very messy results. That's because protons are made of quarks, which are held together by force-carrying particles called gluons. A proton-proton collision actually involves six quarks and multiple gluons. Therefore, while the output of the high-luminosity LHC can be useful, and it will produce lots of Higgs bosons, it will also produce a lot of unwanted particles too. If you are at the Hailumi LHC, you would produce billions of Higgs, for instance. But then you produce them with a lot of other stuff around. So again, you need to do a lot of work to clean them up, which makes those analyses a little bit more complex. And when instead you move to E plus E minus, then maybe you produce much less. We're talking about a million Higgses instead, but you get them all. You don't select, you produce them, you get them all, they're very clean, you know them one by one. So this makes a huge difference in terms of that little number that is attached to the mass of the Higgs or the couplings of the Higgs or the different properties, uh, for instance, that talk about the Higgs or others. A future electron-positron collider might not reach such high energies, but it can be tuned to make very specific observations, for example, to probe a specific unexpected finding in much more detail. The reason why these electron-positron machines can create a finely tunable, clean set of collisions is because electrons themselves are truly elementary particles. 
That means that the collisions between them are cleaner than those between protons. There's no cloud of quarks and gluons that can produce so much mess and debris. In our previous episode, we mentioned the anomalous result from an American particle collider called Fermilab. It measured the mass of a force-carrying particle called the W boson and found that it didn't precisely match the predictions of the standard model. We also told you, if you remember, that the LHC isn't really set up to verify whether this finding is true or not. The proposed future collider, the FCC, might be able to tease out the answer to this question though, if you can wait a number of decades for that result. The only way to really go below the uncertainty that is there is really to have any plus and minus at the W threshold. Patrizia Atzi again. She's talking there about tuning the electron-positron machine precisely to the point where W bosons are known to be created. There is a very clean way to have a very precise measurement with no doubt. Um, Right now, we know that we're going to try to understand better and there will be the Hailumi. We know that for Hailumi, this is not a measurement that is for Hailumi because for Hailumi to have it, you really need to do special runs with Low Lumi, <laughs> which is a bit ironic. Low Lumi here means low luminosity. That just means there's a lower number of collisions happening. But in this case, observing W bosons precisely is much more important than just producing lots of energetic data. Larger circular colliders aren't the only options for future experiments, though. There's a proposal which is currently centred in Japan to build a linear collider, which has been around for a while, but now that we know the Higgs is there, maybe someone will actually bite the bullet and do it. That's John Butterworth again. He works at the Atlas experiment at CERN. And that may point to discrepancies in the standard model, or it will certainly probe the mechanisms of this fine balance, if you like, of the standard model more closely than before. A linear collider could accelerate electrons and positrons from the opposite ends of a straight track and let them meet in the middle. In theory, these colliders would also be able to precisely create clean collisions like their ring-shaped equivalents. As well as the one proposed for Japan, which is diplomatically named the International Linear Collider, CERN has proposed a machine that would work in a similar way, called the Compact Linear Collider, or CLIC. Unlike a ring, a linear collider can be constructed in stages, which helps when you're trying to pay for it over a long time. Both designs, the ILC and CLIC, would end up around 50 kilometers long. That's if they're ever made, though. So the interest of having a linear collider is because when you start to colliding particles like the electrons, because they're very light, it's really hard to push their energy in a circular way. Patrizia Atzi. So the only way to really have access to higher energy is to go in a, with a choice of a linear scheme. If you want to keep light particles like electrons and their positron twins moving in a circle, you need a strong magnetic field. Also, when charged particles like electrons or positrons move in a circle, they emit energy known as synchrotron radiation in the form of X-rays. The faster the particles go, the more energy they lose. An electron-positron collider that runs in a straight line, therefore, would be easier, cheaper and more environmentally friendly to operate. It could create collisions at higher energies too. But there are drawbacks. 
yes, you can go to higher energy, but you cannot just go to very, very high energy. The other drawback, mostly for experimentalists, is that in a linear collider scheme, it's a bit trickier to have more detectors. Because if in a circle you can dig four pits and you have four detectors, at the most, we would say two to four, like the LHC, then when you are in a linear, there are, of course, schemes. Each proposal might have more detector concepts proposed, but it's kind of trickier to have more than one. And also the way that you distribute your data, then it's either one or the other. So in practice, that is a little of a drawback in terms of the amount of statistics you accumulate. There is the positive side that when you're linear, you can do more tricks with the beam. I don't think I need to be more precise. <laughs> that can allow you then uh, to play with the way that you produce your particles. So even if you do not have the same statistics, you can kind of gain back some information. John Butterworth also reflected on the challenges that linear colliders might face. What personally excites me is the energy frontier, which the protons are the way to go for that. Because the size of the machine you'd have to build to study the Higgs carefully and the potential results there, for me, that you may end up with some more anomalies, but you wouldn't be able to directly access what was causing them. So that's my doubt. But this is a very, you know, this is a, there's a very wide differences of opinion in the field. You can understand the annoyance. Finding more anomalies with the standard model, but still not being able to access the answers even in 20 or 30 years time, well, it's frustrating. But John Butterworth was actually quite positive about the possibility of exploring higher energy collisions. The best way to do that would be with bigger hadron colliders, which, if you remember, smash protons and other bigger particles together. The argument is that instead of making precise measurements of the Higgs boson or W boson or any other particle using electron-positron machines, researchers should just embrace higher energies straight away, collect bigger amounts of data and, well, just see what happens. The main thing is that now that we know the Higgs boson is there, we have a very solid set of predictions from the standard model, which really we didn't have before because we didn't know whether the Higgs was there or mainly what its mass was and what its properties were. John says that most of his career so far has been very clearly defined by chasing the Higgs boson. That was the roadmap for the field until 10 years ago. Nowadays, though, there isn't such a clear path forward. This is a very odd position for a field of science to be in, right? Because we've got a guaranteed 10 to 15 years of exciting stuff to come. Some physicists argue that the uncertainty which now surrounds the field makes it risky to focus only on an electron-positron collider. They wonder, what if that machine can't operate at high enough energies to push deep into the territory of new physics? Patricia Atzi isn't so pessimistic, though. In one sense, it's of course needed to have sometimes higher energy to create a new particle because the Higgs was unaccessible at the plus and minus of the time. In other words, the Large Hadron Collider was needed to produce the Higgs boson. The theory goes that with higher energies, more new particles can be discovered. However, we haven't seen really yet this type of surprise discoveries. We have seen and we see a lot of inconsistency in some measurements that we expect, especially in some particular fields of the standard model, some sectors. What Patricia means is that the LHC hasn't unlocked any new particles that weren't already predicted by theorists. 
let's be clear. The fact that we haven't seen anything of what we were expecting at the scale that we are accessing with the LHC is not just strange, but it's something that informs the fact that maybe we should think in a different way, that maybe we should look for this new physics in a different way. So, for instance, when you go to very precise plus and minus, uh, sometimes there is the prejudice that precision is boring, but we get very excited when we send the mass rover to Mars and we're getting, you know, pictures of the rocks that are just so much more clear than the one we had before. And everyone gets extremely excited. So this would be the same. <laughs> this would be the master over. And when you start looking at these things in a very clear way, then you might start seeing other things. As for the argument for higher energy collisions... The advantage of the higher energy right now maybe is not necessarily in that respect anymore because we know that there is not, in the theories we know, not that many particles that we can explore at that range. Theoretical physicists at the moment don't know what could be found at higher energies. So why not try this other approach? Even if you are at the lower energy, like when we run at the energy of the Z boson, for instance, but with a huge, incredible amount of data, that actually gives access to dark matter candidates that is really astounding and is very complementary to many other type of measurements. So that would be absolutely a discovery. It's just it's not a massive particle. It's a less massive particle, but very shy, that it's hard to see. I find that really <laughs> intriguing. So what you're saying is that even with lower energy colliders, but with higher precision, there could perhaps be particles hiding that we've not been able to detect. And so even in the last few years, when we've been going to higher and higher energies and not finding anything, there could still be particles, but we just don't see them. Yes, because the way that we have been making our choices, in particular with the trigger selections at the LHC, clearly they are informed. Of course, the beginning was the Higgs, and we did it right. So we had ideas of where to look, which type of, we call them, you know, signatures to look for. And so that is what we chose. But now we are learning, the more and more we have been exploring things we know we want to measure, now we try to go for the ones that are more difficult. So it's easier to find, you know, an event that has many, many particles with a lot of energies, leptons, so things that are very clean. It becomes much harder if your particle is very shy and maybe the products are very soft or maybe the products are, you know, strange. They decay in the middle of your detectors. And right now, this is something that in fact, to run three. What we're trying to do now is also to try to recover, to make our detector able to start looking for these strange things, because clearly we need a new paradigm. So far, we've explored hadron colliders, which are messy, but collide particles at higher energies. And we've also looked at electron-positron colliders, which can be very precise. But there's another type of machine worth considering too. The yeah, muon collider is the best of both worlds in that it's clean like an electron, but it's heavier like a proton. That's John Butterworth again. Muons are sort of fat electrons. They're fundamental particles, so you can do very clean collisions with them, like you can with electrons and positrons. But the collisions will be at higher energies because muons are so much more massive 
than standard electrons. The thing that limits the energy that you can get an electron up to in a circular collider is what we call synchrotron radiation, which it loses as it goes around the corners. It radiates energy in the form of photons, which are very useful at somewhere like the diamond light source in Oxfordshire. You do a lot of physics with those photons, but from our point of view, they're wasted energy. The energy lost is related to the mass of the particle. Electrons, which are very light particles, lose lots of energy via synchrotron radiation, while protons, which are much more massive, just don't. Muons would not either because they're more than 100 times heavier than the electrons, so they avoid that problem. And yet they are fundamental particles, so you would think they would be cleaner than colliding protons together. Unfortunately, that cleanliness is not quite the case because muons actually decay, and they decay to electrons and neutrinos, and it turns out that if you want an intense beam, then that causes some significant challenges which people are looking into addressing. So there's no free lunch, unfortunately, even with muon colliders, but it's, it's definitely something worth investigating. Muons, though, are not easy particles to work with. Unlike with electrons, positrons and protons, there aren't several decades of know-how and technology on how to collide these particles easily. Creating a muon collider would be an enormously challenging scientific and engineering research project. But never say never. It's impossible to know how technology might change in the coming decades. Muon colliders might sound rather impossible now, but researchers are looking at them. Come back to me in 20 years and let's see where we're at. What's clear is that if physicists want answers to the big, open questions they have, they'll need new instruments. We ended our first episode from CERN by suggesting that the upgrades to the Large Hadron Collider might not be enough to fill the gaps in the physicist's knowledge. It's worth asking now, as we prepare to leave Geneva, will any particle accelerator ever be enough? There, there has to be a limit somewhere. We will at some point reach a point of diminishing returns, I guess, in, in terms of increasing the energy. When exactly that occurs, well, it won't be exact, it will be a judgment call, but when it occurs, will depend on what nature reveals, right? There's a very strong motivation for exploring in that direction, but the costs in terms of investment of time and effort as well as money will increase and time scales will increase as well. So I, if we find something with the high lumi LHC that points to something that you would find with a 100 kilometer tunnel, then I think you know the case becomes hugely stronger. Whether the case of exploring on its own is enough to motivate the next generation of machines is a discussion we're having right now. And it's not a given. Right? We, we can't just assume that this, this process will carry on forever. But it's one of the frontiers of human knowledge that has been very fruitful and there's clearly stuff to find there. I wouldn't like to be part of the generation that walks away from it, but in the end, you know, nature may defeat us, it's true. We know that we'll never be able to reach the very highest energy scales in our theories of the standard model. That's the theoretical physicist who we heard from last time at CERN, Tavong Yu. We don't have gravity, and a quantum theory of gravity is something that we will never be able to access in a collider. So those scales are beyond any foreseeable technology. This doesn't worry me at all, because there are other phenomena that we can access at the current energy scales. The fact that we are able to even get to where we have now, it's remarkable that we have understood so much so far, and yet it's not quite there yet, is a niche that I just really, really would like to scratch. And what would really help is more data. And perhaps we'll build the next generation of colliders and still find the standard model, but we won't know. And we also have to keep getting more data, and not just in high-energy colliders, but in 
bigger telescopes, better gravitational wave observatories, better small-scale experiments that can do very specific types of measurements. All of these data can come together to give a coherent picture to lead to the next breakthrough in a way that we just can't foresee now. Fundamental physics has achieved an astonishing amount in its first century. A hundred years ago, there was no quantum mechanics, no standard model, no idea of the fundamental forces or the Higgs boson. So it's definitely a fool's errand to try and predict where this field of scientific discovery will go in its next hundred years. But as I get back on the tram and head back towards the city centre of Geneva, leaving behind the unassuming office buildings of CERN, I'm left with some quite big questions. Will we ever know what exists beyond the standard model? Will we ever manage to tie together what happens at the very smallest scales to the grand forces that shape the rest of the infinite cosmos? Will we ever get to the bottom of those anomalies of dark energy and dark matter? The epic success of physics in the 20th century has set us all up to expect even more in the future. But the inconvenient truth could be that nature just isn't as easily explainable as we'd hoped. Perhaps physicists will be able to probe deeper with their next generation of machines. Or perhaps it will take the generation of machines after that. Or even the machines after that. There are no guarantees. But the only way to find any of this out is to keep pushing ahead nonetheless. Lots of the physicists I spoke to at CERN knew that despite their best efforts, they themselves might not get the answers to the big questions they've been asking for their entire careers. But that's just the thing when you're tackling such profound ideas. It might take generations of people to get to the bottom of it all. But none of those future discoveries will happen without the insights, the planning, the grit and the creativity of the physicists working right at the edge of knowledge today. Our thanks to John Butterworth, Runda Stierenberg, Patricia Atzi, Marco Galaski, Tavon Yu, and all of the other scientists that we spoke to at CERN, who we weren't able to include in these shows. For more on the future of physics, subscribe to The Economist. Get your best introductory rate for a subscription at economist.com slash podcast offer. And if you enjoy being a subscriber to The Economist, why not sign up to our science and technology newsletter called Simply Science? Every week you can get some amazing insights and analysis, plus usually a brilliant scientific gif delivered directly to your inbox. Head to economist.com forward slash newsletters to sign up. The links for all those things I've mentioned are in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. Additional production support this week was provided by Timo Seiler. The executive producers are Hannah Mourinho and Harriet Noble. I'm Alok Jha, and from Geneva, this is The Economist. Thank you. 
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.